This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And a good ner of Shabbos and a good ner of Purim. I'm Mashi Lipsker. This is Chai FM. And it is a pleasure to be with you on this era of Shabbos. As the hype, the excitement, the anticipation for Purim builds up. Purim will please God be on Wednesday night and Thursday. And what a day it is. It is a day unique in the Jewish calendar. It is a day like none, no other. And we want to examine why is it that this incredible day, which is one day unlike Pesach, which is seven or eight days, even Shavuot, well, Shavuot's a connection, a continuum from Pesach, the culmination of the seven weeks of counting, and it's two days. And, of course, we have Sukkot. We have all these wonderful days in the calendar that are not just 24 hours, except for Yom Kippur and Purim. And these two days share, in fact, a name, because Purim which is the word for lots or lottery, but in Persian, not even a Hebrew word. And Kippurim, atonement, seem to be very interconnected. Even more than that, it seems that Purim is higher than Yom Kippur because the day of Yom Kippur is compared to Purim, the, the, the letter K or the prefix k in Hebrew means like, kmo. So Purim is the day, and even Yom Kippur is like Purim, ki Purim. What is so unique, special, holy, beyond this world? It's otherworldly, but in the world, about the festival of Purim. And how is it meant to inspire us? After all, every single Chag, every single event in history is meant to teach us something. And we are meant to tap in to the particular energy of the days, of the months, because when something happened at a particular time, once upon a time, it is because there was a particular energy in the air then, which comes back. And we too are able, in our times, by celebrating it properly, to access the blessings that existed then, which exist again. As we say, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who made miracles for our fathers by Yamim HaHem Bizman Hazeh. In those days, but at this time. And if we picture that there's an energy in the month of Adar, the month we're in now, and that energy influences, that energy is prevalent, and it's only for us to access the energy and to bring it into our lives in order to access the actual message, the actual growth, the actual miracle that happened then but at this time. So 
Here we are getting ready for the festival of festivals called Purim. And we want to examine what's the history behind Purim, how does it apply to us today, and how do we access the incredible energy and bring it into our lives. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. I'm Mashi Lipsker. This is 101.5.9 High FM, and we are getting ready for Purim. And we know that the Shabbos contains all the days that follow. This being the Shabbos before Purim is an appropriate time to prepare, to think about, and get ready spiritually for Purim. And so Erev Shabbos, we're doing just that. The story of the Megillah is well known. The story of the Book of Esther. And it's a story that begins with a big party. It's a story that begins in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. And he ruled over 127 lands from Hodu to Kush. Ahasuerus made a party. And what a party it was. An incredible, incredible display of his wealth, of his greatness, of his honor. And it lasted for six months, 180 days. That party was celebrated with all of his officials, his governors, everybody gathered and drank and partied and ate and partied and drank some more for 180 days. But it didn't stop there. He went on to celebrate then with all the citizens in the capital of Shushan for a full week. And that full week was meant to draw the people close, draw them in and make them feel his democracy, as it were, make them feel that they were really part and to try and consolidate his rulership over them. And what a party that was. Everything was incredibly lavish and to try and please all of the guests. The story goes on that at that party, the drinking got a bit out of hand. The men were discussing the beauty of their wives. And the king said he had the most beautiful wife of all. And they said, prove it. And he called for her. She refused to come. And she was removed. So he doesn't have a wife now. And after that, he gets a new wife. But before he gets the new wife, we are introduced to the fact that there's a Jewish man living in the city of Shushan, a man who had been exiled from Jerusalem, along with all of the exiles who came down with a king called Yehonia. And there he lived, and he was raising his uncle's daughter, his cousin, and her name was Hadassah or Esther, for she had neither a father nor a mother. And she was very, very beautiful. 
and she was taken to the palace. And she was actually chosen to be the queen. Next installment, as it were, is that the queen suggests to the king that he appoint a Jewish advisor. And Mordechai is appointed. Mordechai has advised Esther not to tell that she's Jewish, not to tell where she comes from. Mordechai is appointed. Mordechai overhears a plot against the king, and he foils that plot. The culprits are found. They are killed. And in the book of Chronicles of the king, they record what the king says, and the king says, Mordechai saved my life, and he must be rewarded as soon as possible. And those are the first two chapters. Only then does an evil man become promoted to a position of great power. His name was Haman, and he now is the big man, second to the king, and Haman does not like the Jews. And Haman does not like Mordechai. And every time he sees Mordechai, he gets annoyed. And Mordechai doesn't give him the respect he demands. And he's very determined to destroy Mordechai. But it's beneath his dignity just to get rid of one Jew. So he's cooking up a plan to get rid of them all. And the story continues. And basically, Mordechai finds out about it. Esther intervenes with the king. Haman is hanged. And the Jews kind of live happily ever after. What does it sound like? It sounds like a story. It sounds like a script. It sounds like a play. It sounds like somebody sits down and they decide to write a novel. And they put everything into place. They have a beginning, and then this suspense, and ultimately the high point where everything gets sorted out, and they live happily ever after. However, this is not just a story of once upon a time there was a king, and the king had a queen, and then he had another queen, and she was there just at the right moment to intervene for her people so that because of her going to the king, her nation was saved. It seems to be like that, but it is not at all in reality like that. In reality, God was directing everything. Just picture. It's a theater. And the theater has sets. It has stage backdrops. You can have a whole village, but there really isn't a house behind the facade. There are windows, there are doors, there could be a picket fence, there could be a garden. But when you open the door and you go inside, you're really backstage. And the actors are meant to come on and off and say their lines according to what the director 
instructs. And the script has been written and they need to follow the theme, say their lines. And this is how the play unfolds. But if an actor convinces himself that he's really that person and he really has the power, the wealth, the wardrobe, he's fooling himself. When he understands that this is a job and he must choose to speak at the right moment, to act in the right way, all according to what the director wants, then the play is successful. But if he really thinks that these are really houses and he's really living a thousand years ago and he's really the king and he really owns the gold, the silver, which are really not gold and silver, but just things to make the audience think that he has all this opulence and wealth, then there's something wrong with him. Essentially, our lives, God has created the world and set the stage. But behind the facade, there's a spiritual reality. Most things are set by the director. The play is written, and we are placed in a particular place to do our part. In all of this, however, we need to remember that we are just part of an entire play. And we need, of course, we can choose not to say our lines. We can choose not to act our part. But then we ruin it for ourselves and for others. We can choose to fool ourselves and say, this is really a palace. This is really what it's about. But then there are the wise people who understand that when you open the door behind the gilded facade, behind this beautiful-looking building, it's only one wall, it's only one dimension. Behind is a whole other reality that's backstage. In life, Hashem gives us life, puts us into a family, puts us into a country at a particular time, and everything about our lives is scripted. The only thing we have is the choice between good and evil. We have the choice to be involved or not to be involved. We have the choice to play our part or not. And depending on how we choose, that is how successful not only the play is and things progress, but our own sense of self, of joy, of confidence, because we know who we are. We are not the play. We are not the director. But we can please the director. We can work together with the other actors. And we can bring fame and fulfillment to ourselves, as it were. The story of Purim is a story of the stage being set. And the king there thought he was the power. And Haman thought 
that he had the power. And so it was that there were many Jews at that time who had been drawn in to the Persian way of life. They'd been drawn into that way of thinking, that philosophy, that attitude, that might makes right, that wealth is what commands you respect and status in this world. And it was a corrupt society. It was a hectic society. But there lived a Jew in that capital city whose name was Mordechai. And Mordechai was the head of the Sanhedrin. Mordechai was a dignified, learned, holy man. A man who was very much in touch with the fact that he had been exiled into Persia, but he was from Jerusalem. And he was a man who led the people and continued to explain to them that they were only there for a limited amount of time and they were going to be rescued and redeemed and the second temple was going to be rebuilt, was going to be built. He was aware of who he was and what part he had to play. And he raised Hadassah Esther in that same spirit. We are grateful for our host society but we are Jews. We are from Yerushalayim. And we have to continue to live as Jews. Nothing's more important, for we are a holy nation. Holy means separate. We are not like everybody else. And we need to stay true to the part that we've been given on this stage. And not to forget, even if the show runs on and on and on for many years, we have to retain the same sparkle, enthusiasm, every time we put on the play, every time we are called upon to do our part. The same passion, the same excitement and involvement as if it's the first time that we're doing this thing. And Mordechai played his part. Unfortunately, Many of the Jews at that time, most, had already blended in. They wanted to be like everyone else. They, did, they no longer were so connected to the holiness that personifies a Jew, the separateness, the connection to Hashem. And they were more like enjoying the intellectual side, the philosophical side, slipping away from God's Torah and his mitzvahs and just wanting to be a good person or an educated person. And what happened was, and the Megillah opens with the story of this party. What was Ahasuerus? What was the king celebrating? We're told he was actually celebrating his miscalculation where he believed that the 70 years that the prophet predicted were up and that now the Jewish people were going to stay in his country forever. Jerusalem was not going to be rebuilt. It was not going to be a threat. And his kingdom would be established even more firmly. He was celebrating, God forbid, the end of the hope, which for him was a dread that God was going to gather in the exiles and rebuild Jerusalem.
to prove that, we have allusions, we have hints in the actual text, which explain that he actually donned the eight garments of the high priest, which are described in the parsha this week. He flaunted them, the holy garments of the Kohen Gadol. He put food on the tables in the vessels of the holy temple. He was as if he was saying, there is no director. What was, was. Now I am in charge and I will do what I like. So it was with Haman. Haman believed he had ten sons, he had many daughters, he had wealth, he had power. However, that, none of that is real. Because if you open the door and you walk through the facade, there's another reality. Mordechai lived in that reality. And therefore, when the Megillah begins and there was an invitation to all the citizens in Shushan to come and enjoy the party, come and show your allegiance to the king. The king wants to celebrate with you. If you need kosher food, you'll have kosher food. You need kosher wine, it'll be there. Just come and be a good citizen. People said, how can we not go? How can we insult the king? And Mordechai was saying, how can you insult the king of kings? That king is just an actor. The real director, the real king of kings, the real brain behind the script doesn't want you to go. Because that man is celebrating your shame. He thinks you're not going to leave exile. He's celebrating what he thinks is, God forbid, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the Jewish power, the end of the Jewish country. Don't go. Do not go, begged Mordechai. Very few Jews listened to Mordechai. And they went. Many of them had the sensitivity to be repelled when they saw the way he was dressed, to be repulsed when they saw food in the holy vessels of the Bet HaMikdash that had been stolen by the Babylonians when they destroyed the temple. But they were made very comfortable very quickly. Stay, don't worry, kosher food, whatever. And they stayed and ultimately, what was their sin? That they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the man who was mocking them. They celebrated their own denigration. They had no idea. They thought this is the king, the power. They thought that this is the reality. They forgot to look behind the scenes. And so... A terrible decree arose against them in heaven because the miracle of redemption was set to come ten years later. And the Jews were slipping away. They were forgetting. They weren't hoping. They weren't praying. They were not playing their part. We'll be right, right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And when we forget who we are, our director will remind us because we are destined for greatness. 
We are destined to show the world what is behind the scenes. That is our mission. And therefore, a terrible cloud began to gather. But thank God everything was already in place. Hashem had put it there. The queen was Jewish, and she was listening to her cousin Mordechai, who was the head of the Sanhedrin, who was directing her and guiding her. And she didn't even tell her new husband that she was Jewish, where she came from. She didn't disclose anything that Mordechai didn't want her to disclose. For Mordechai understood very well that for this tzaddikus, this righteous woman, to be taken to that palace of lewdness and immorality, there had to be a divine reason. Nothing happens for nothing. And that is why he bided his time and he bade her to do the same. He said, wait and see, and the meanwhile do this and don't say that, etc. And so it was that in heaven, a terrible decree was gathering against the people. They don't deserve to be redeemed. That was basically the idea. And that's when, down here in this world, Haman was able to formulate this terrible slander against the people. And the words that he used, we are told, Satan in heaven was using the same words. We're told that Haman said, Your Majesty, there is this nation. They are scattered amongst the peoples of your lands. They don't listen to the king. It's not worthwhile for the king to allow them to continue. They don't do your laws. And it's just not worth it. If it pleases the king, let me make a decree that they be destroyed, that they be eradicated, and I'll even pay you for it. I'll even fill up the coffers for this favor. Of course, there are many things behind this, but essentially, this was the decree against the Jews in heaven, in the script that God was writing. For the Sultan came and said, Hashem, this is the people you're planning to redeem? They're gone. They're no longer holy and separate and thinking about you and what you want. But Eliyahu Hanavi, the prophet Elijah, came to Mordechai in a dream, and although Haman had kept the entire um, document, the entire plan, secret, it was revealed to Mordechai. And revealed to Mordechai why this was happening, because they enjoyed, they took pleasure from the feast of that wicked man. We think Haman was wicked. Ahasuerus was worse. And what happened was that Mordechai knew what he had to do. And it wasn't to use his position or Esther's position initially and use diplomatic channels because that wasn't what was going on behind the scenes. This was not just, we'll all approach the king and we'll say it's a mistake and we'll present a, a paper and... No. Mordechai knew why this was happening because nothing happens in this world unless there's a spiritual reason, unless there's something that prompts it. 
any difficult situation has a spiritual source. And once Mordechai knew the spiritual source, he was able to apply the spiritual cure. And what did he do? He went out into the streets dressed in sackcloth and ash with a bitter cry. And he roused the people, not only from their sleep, but from their spiritual sleep. And he gathered the people, and he gathered 22,000 children. And he told them what was happening. And he studied the Torah with them. He studied parts of the Torah that were not even applicable at that time, meaning it wasn't for intellectual pleasure. It was basically to connect with the laws of God, with the mitzvahs of God, which is to study the Torah. It was to go beyond the rationale. It was to go beyond, behind the scenes. And only once he had put that into place, what did he do? Well, he told Esther to go to the king and speak to her because you always need to make what's called a vessel for blessing, but to know that the blessing really comes from Hashem, but the way God made the world is in a natural way, and we need to use natural means and channels, but not before we put the spiritual blessing into place. So he said to Esther, go to the king, because this is probably why you have become queen for a time like this. And Esther said to Mordechai, I haven't been called for more than 30 days. I have not been called all this time. And that's if if somebody comes to the king uninvited and seemingly out of favor, the king, according to law, has the right to kill them. But then Esther said, you know what? Because Mordechai said, for sure, this is why you have become queen. You've got to use your position now. So what does Esther do? Normally, you're going to see the king. He hasn't called you in a few weeks. You don't know if he loves you anymore. You make yourself look gorgeous. You do your makeup and your hair and dress in your best colors. And you get a good massage and a good facial and so on and so forth. You know what Esther does? She fasts. And she prays, and she doesn't eat, and she doesn't drink for three days and three nights. Imagine what she's going to look like. But Esther knew this was not a physical, diplomatic, normal situation. She had to do something strongly spiritual, holy, to connect with Hashem. She had to do something which would... Make a vessel for blessing. And on the third day, Esther got up, she changed her clothes, and she went to stand in front of the king. And when the king saw her, he saw an angel. When the king saw her, he didn't just see his queen. Something powerful, spiritual was there. And of course, we know the story of how he listened to her. She cleverly said, come to a feast, come to a second feast. But it wasn't because we had a man in the White House or a man in Washington that we knew we were safe. We understood, they understood, Mordechai understood that at all times Hashem is running the world. And what we think is a political figure of power, 
what we think is an important banker, what we think is a powerful ruler. Well, he's only there because Hashem gave him a part in the play. And the real power and the real director is Hashem. And when we play it according to the way he wants it, there's no question that he takes us behind the scenes and he makes everything a real success. But we've got to realize that behind the scenes is the reality. Backstage is where the real people are. On stage, it's only a play. And that is why God's name is not mentioned even once in the Megillah. Because that's how it is in our world. He's hiding, but he's directing. That's the story of our lives. We think we run our lives. I have this child and this husband and this job and this friend. I live in this country and the politics is like this and the finances are like that. Guess what? They are not the powers. And the way we change what seems to be happening is by connecting with the director. When we are connected to the source of reality, then we are able to be powerful. And Mordechai knew that. It wasn't about diplomacy at that moment. It wasn't about using his power in government. It was about doing what a Jew has to do, strengthening the bond between Hashem and the person between us and him. And it worked. It worked incredibly. So the Megillah is a story of our lives. There are two stories happening. The seeming story, once upon a time, and the real story of what and why, when and how. And that's why Purim will always be celebrated, even when Mashiach comes, because that is the story of our lives. The Baal Shem Tov says, whoever reads or hears the Megillah out of order because we've got to hear it twice and hear every word. If you hear it, Lemafreya, you have not fulfilled your obligation. If you hear it and you hear all the words, but you missed a few words and you kind of say them afterwards, that's not the way. But there's a deeper teaching there. Whoever listens to the Megillah, as if it's a story that happened once upon a time, he has not fulfilled his obligation in celebrating Purim. Purim is to teach us the story of our lives. There are two simultaneous plots, as it were, two simultaneous stories. And then when it was over, how did the Jewish people celebrate? This was very significant. The Jewish people, it says, they had oira v'simcha v'sosayim v'ikar. They had light joy, rejoicing, and honor. And we're told, our sages say, what does it mean they had light? Of course, it was dark before, now they had light. But it says, they had Torah, they had the guidance. They were connected again to God through his holy Torah. The Simcha, what means, what is Simcha? Simcha is celebrating Yontif. What are Yomim Toivim about? It's about events where God manifested or manifests in our lives. 
redeeming us from Egypt at Pesach, giving us the Torah at Sinai, judging us on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, his involvement in our lives, Sukkot, that he took us through the desert, protected, Hanukkah, and so on. The Jews got reconnected to the Torah, to the festivals. They had Oira v'Simcha, and that's why they had light and joy. The Sosayim v'Yakar, Bris Mila, circumcision, and Tefillin. All of these mitzvahs are mitzvahs of connection. A bris, a sign of a covenant between God and the Jew. Yukar, tefillin, a sign that God protects us. All of these things they had again in their lives, manifesting as light and joy and rejoicing and honor. What is the real joy for a Jew? What is the real honor for a Jew? What is the real light for a Jew? It's things that are connected to Torah and mitzvahs. And how did they then celebrate? They celebrated in a very significant way, which we continue to do. They celebrated by having a feast together, which means love of one another, friends sitting down, recounting the miracle and celebrating. They celebrated by giving foods to a friend, sending food portions to a friend, connection between people. They celebrated by giving gifts to the poor, caring about others, all to do with human beings, all to do with the humility that personifies a Jew, the humility to see the other person, the humility to remember that there is a God in this world. That's what we're really all about. And therefore, we continue to celebrate in this way by hearing the Megillah twice, once on Wednesday night and once on Thursday. We continue by sending at least two foods to one friend, or we should say two foods to at least one friend called Shalach Monas, Mishloach Manot. We celebrate by giving gifts to the poor. Our sages say, whoever extends his hand, we must give. And we celebrate by having a big feast that starts by day and extends into the night. A feast where we connect to the idea that our minds are not the ultimate judge, but beyond understanding, beyond all of that, there's a director to the world, and that causes us tremendous joy. Wishing you a good Shabbos and a very happy Purim.